This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, my name is John Feaster. I'm David Stifle, that Burroughs guy, your host and narrator, except uh, Jesse is our host, I'm just the narrator. And we're going to be talking about your narrated audiobook, The Monster Men, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. First published in 1913, it, it sounds like in one issue of All Story Magazine. Mm-hmm. Which version were you reading from? I- from the book publication or the magazine publication? Well, they're the same deal. I'm, I was actually reading from the Project Gutenberg publication, mm-hmm. which is exactly the same as the Ace book that was published in the 60s, which is oh. probably, uh, I don't know, I haven't compared the magazine story with the published story, but I just went with uh, uh, the Project Gutenberg text. Mm-hmm. I, I found um, recently, one I was going to ask you about, a book uh, from about this same year called The Girl from Hollywood, which is a mainstream book. By yes. Browse. I've have nev- looked at that one. I have never, I've read The Mucker and it just didn't stick with me at all. I read it back in, in, in the sixties or uh, late sixties and that one hasn't stuck with me either. He's actually wrote quite a few attempts at, uh, uh, real literature, I mean, real social, I don't know how social commentary he was, but uh, uh, there's the girl from Hollywood, and I think they have dope rings and uh, implied prostitution going on there, I think. And uh, there's another one called The Efficiency Expert, uh, mm-hmm. the girl from Ferris's. He he did attempt to do some, uh, some I guess, real literature or... It was just another genre for him. Uh, he was incredibly busy all the time. So uh, I do know that uh, there's a story. He he was very jealous of the serious writers of the time. Uh, I remember I read a story that he was out at a nightclub one night, and his second wife was going all crazy over, Oh, it's Ernest Hemingway. It's Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> And at the, in these days, I, I understand he'd been drinking, and uh, he was not happy with that at all. He says, well, if that's who you like, then you go over to his table. I'm going home. So he, he, he always said he was only doing it for the money. But he, there, there are indications that he really resented that he was not taken seriously as a writer, like Hemingway, uh, Fitzgerald, etc., etc. Hmm. Well, this is... Uh, it, it was... Kind of what I expected, and kind of not what I expected. It, it it felt like it was a little more mainstream than it somehow should be, considering the guy creates his own species of humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is pretty. Uh, this is like uh, Doctor Frankenstein, but he kept going. You I, know, he kept cooking. I was thinking more more uh, Island of Doctor Moreau. Uh, yes, uh, definitely Island of Doctor Moreau as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's elements of it all. I mean, he's it, the, the great opening with he he's throwing the grisly remains of his experiment into the nitric acid. Otherwise, he's going to be taken away for murder and uh, with a failed experiment. But uh, uh, no, Victor Frankenstein used it uh, used mechanical means. I mean, he dug up dead bodies and stitched them together and uh, rejuvenated them with electricity. And this guy's well, doing it all chemically. He grows them in vats. Well, I don't know. I, the, I, the original I should... story he was was all chemical, wasn't it? Yeah. See, it's very interesting because when you read Frankenstein, it 
it, everybody comes away with the idea that it's electrical and that he's using dead bodies. But actually, what he studies at university is very much what those textbooks that are in that chest at the end of this book are. You know, mm-hmm. they're alchemical texts because if you if you look into alchemy a little bit. Um, like what they were really obsessed with is these growths that they could get going that actually kind of looked like people inside of these, you know, alchemical jars. They would be like growing um, perfectly non, you know, they're not actually people, but they had uh, the appearance, you know, sort of like a mandrake root uh-huh. has the sort of a, the shape of a man and they grow and they, they, they thought they were really onto something. And I think that that it's it very much fits in with the Frankenstein tradition. I mean, we we do get Galvani right is mentioned in Frankenstein, but I think that Burroughs is reading just as closely uh, Frankenstein's actual you know alchemical stuff. Uh, you know, we we sort of when we read Frankenstein, we always overlay the movies and the uh, you know the the uh, there are there is electricity in this book in Frankenstein but this is much more with that sort of chemical tradition mm-hmm. uh, that is also in Frankenstein in in the monster man but that 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 part of the book is so undercooked right like we don't actually see the chemical oh no what? no no he, we we yeah he just says uh, he's doing it it's uh, he's uh, creating life and it's chemical and uh, all we hear about is well, in the beginning we hear nothing uh, except that he's having to uh, dissolve the body in acid, right. which is a great start. Yeah. There's a lot of really great scenes in in this book. Um, the the is at the end of chapter two. Uh, the girl gets on the machine gun and starts shooting up the pirate. Oh ship. yeah, she yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> oh my God, what an awesome scene! Yeah, I was like, she she's gonna go over. To, yeah, she is going. She's, yep, yep, yep. She's going to go over to the machine gun and and kill this kill the pirates as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This Everybody's is, got a machine gun everywhere. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Heck. Yeah. This is one of his feistiest heroines, actually. Uh, she uh, she's got a little bit of spunk in her compared to uh, Jane Clayton or, or some of the other females. Well, the, the, the savage females are always cool, like uh, the lady in in Pellucidar. But uh, no, this this lady's got some spunk. Yeah, she 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 knocks out one of the pirates, jumps overboard, swims away. She she says, "I'm going to break down the door with an axe if you don't come out of there." Yeah, I, I, I was very much pleased with Virginia. I I, I thought that was just in- interesting. That's the character's name, right? Is this, this Virginia is Virginia right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm afraid I had to go hit or miss on this book. Read and then like a day off, and then read and then a day off, and it's oh, it's all flowing together in me. She was. She was a much more interesting character than, oh, heck, uh, the various noble ladies who are too haughty to say thank you, and yet they convey it with their eyes that seem to constantly cling to that Dejah Thoris, and uh, lovely character, lovely character, not, not dumping on the character, I'm just saying that in comparison to, to to characters like that, she, this this one was was a breath of fresh air. <laughs> How old is she supposed to be? I, uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, she saying the father says, "Go play with your t- toys," and she says, oh. "I've dressed all my dolls." Yeah, I'm yeah, playing. yeah. I've I've made all my mud pies, and then we get the sense that she's much older than that. And she's sort of making fun of him. I was but wondering if there was something actually out of her teens. Do we think? 
It was, what was the line? Oh, Father, if I were a thousand years old and toothless, you would still call me your baby. Right. Yes, that's it. Poor old daddy. Were I a thousand years old, wrinkled and toothless, he would still look upon me as his baby girl. Which, I don't know, I suppose is sort of cute. I keep having to go, wait, wait, wait. This was written 102 years ago. Yeah. And then, okay, okay, then I can put it into perspective. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know. I, I know some parents who still treat their kids like that. <laughs> and there's nobody good enough to marry my daughter. So oh, I'm yeah, of to, course. I'm going to have to make one. <laughs> right, make a man for her. Yeah, there's there's something odd going on, Professor yeah. Jackson and his daughter. <laughs> Definitely. I don't know. I, what, I, does anyone know, was um was Edgar Rice Burroughs, I never found reference to this, but I found weird little, little hints, was he a fan of the concept of eugenics? At the t- at the time period, it's, it was a pretty it's trendy very, source. Yeah, I mean that's sort of going on in here. There's, there, you know, the, some of the racism that we see in in Everything. other books of the period is it, it, it's funny because Singh, the cook, I I think he's the hero of the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even though even though you spend you know David you spend the whole book doing his voice, it's written that way, right? Yeah, it, I did. Written know. in that. Uh, I don't even know how you just replace You mean that like very offensive sounding like Chinese looky thing that make you sound funny, funny. He exactly. lied he, he it all like that. Sing, talk like that all the time. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, he, this is, I mean, I, I had forgotten about that guy at the beginning of the book. And then I, I went back and listened. Um, at the end of the book, it's implied they're, they're going to get married, right? Yes. And uh, and turns out that he's been stalking her across <laughs> the world, and he bet his friend just from one look at her, and uh, when she got into her Pullman, um, he says, "I bet you uh, a car that I <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to find out her name, and it's or I'm going to you know I'm going to get to know her better." Yeah, and it's like this guy's been stalking her halfway around the world or all the way around the world. Um, he he got into a boat with five men, and he was the only one alive. It, it, this is some of the most improbable <laughs> stuff. I mean, I I, I don't know. I th- I thought I had forgotten about that guy, and so when when it turns out that that number thirteen is not one of the monster men, I was like really disappointed. I wanted the man without a soul to be one of these creations, and sort of like a higher version of the sort of rude and crude uh, steps 1 through 12. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I kind of feel the same way. It's uh, it's kind of like the Scooby-Doo thing, that it was all a dream at the end, mm. or it was mm. all, a, all a hoax. But um, who knows? I, I, it's hard to tell. Uh, I think it's hard. Maybe it's because of that racism element that it had to be that way. You think uh, it's possible? I mean, uh, he, he he really can't uh, have. I, I guess he really can't. Uh, he sets it up so strongly that uh, these creations without a soul and a woman really couldn't love him. So um, 
I guess he's trying to say that uh, no, you, we really can't create soul. It has to be a it has to be a, a good human man, you know, a nice rich stalking man who <laughs> has mm. all the, you know, it's okay to stalk her around the world if you're rich, but uh, a good-hearted uh, creation of a test tube, we still can't consider that uh, the same level as as a human. I, he, he well, he was he was a product of his times with those mm-hmm. kinds of contradictions. I mean, he it's could also. He's got, you know, you know what your audience is like. You you play to your audience. Right? Exactly. When when people are criticizing the, you know, Howard and Lovecraft for writing in weird tales these sort of racist stories, it's like, well, yeah, but all the audience was racist too. Exactly. Right? Like people reading those those magazines were, you know, well, what would be more horrible um, than uh, miscegenation? I I can't think of anything. Oh. Great, the great idea for a horror story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's interesting because he had those prejudices, but then in the Tarzan books, he writes about uh, uh, the the noble savages are are far above the uh, civilized villains of of you know of of of, uh, of Germany at least. He he hated he hated Germans and Huns, mm. but um, no, he, he it it. it was that contradiction that was part of of that world view even then it's like uh well uh uh yeah they're fine people i guess uh, i don't know any but uh, i i'm sure there's <laughs> one or two good ones but uh um yeah, it's it's all the white man's world. Uh, whether you know whether you're black or created from a test tube, it's still something that uh, wouldn't be fit for marriage with a white woman. I, I'm, I I'm still satisfied with the book. I, I mean, it's not my favorite Burroughs so far. I, I I was just I wanted more of the creation, you know, because I thought that yeah. That then when we've got the there's a lot of action, and I like Burroughs. He's good at action. Um, he's got, uh, I mean, some of the, some of the great scenes to me were when he's got the bull whip out and, uh, <laughs> again, I'm like, that's no way to treat your creation, <laughs> your creation. And he's got the bull whip out and he's trying to get them all to, uh, cooperate in their quest to save the girl. Um, and then they come across the or- orangutan females and uh-huh. it's like, hey, those are some beautiful ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Well, uh, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, so, so what, what is the ultimate fate of the of the thirteen? One one of them is uh, they all pretty they uh, they all get killed eventually. Uh, uh, they start dying off back uh, when 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 von Horn try. Well, von Horn lets them loose, I guess, and then they mm-hmm. st- and they start running amok and uh, start. Uh, well, let's see. Some of the pirates kill some of them, I think, and mm-hmm. and uh, the orangutans kill some of them, and then the headhunters kill some of them, and and von Horn kills some of them. So I thought they all wind up dead except for number thirteen, and by and the end. So- by the yeah. end, yeah. By the end, uh, we get. Yeah, he. I noticed in terms of voicing him, I only had to voice about three of them because uh, mm-hmm. only about three of them actually said anything. But so it was like number three. I can't even remember the numbers anymore. But uh, uh, they, yeah, they're all expendable, which is kind of sad because uh, he did have a progression that number one was really brutish and number twelve was getting a little bit close. Closer to Stone Age, and then number thirteen, of course, was was modern man, Homo sapiens. He's evolved, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would uh, you call these the Earth cousins of the synthetic men of Mars? 
I mean, they seem oh, similar in origin. That's true. Origin and execution. He liked this idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, growing people in tubes, and yeah, I, I'd forgotten well, grow, synthetic Growing men. people, yeah. period. What, what was it? Caspac, uh, where in the world you have, in this, this portion of the world, it's all dinosaurs, and it slowly works its oh, way right, up you got to slow ele- evolution going on. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I think he really liked that, that idea. I think he, I think he saw a... a uh, a museum display, a, or a, a natural history display, or something of of the progression of man, and and he, he every time he every time he does a does a story involving something like this, and I think this is a well he goes to at least four or five times. You, yeah. you, I I always see him as being inspired by this one image of the progression of man that we make fun of now. You know, he's going, he's got a spear, and then in the end, he's oh, got yeah, a laptop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, how? Uh, how? Uh, I mean, in Burroughs' time, how recent was Darwin? It wasn't that far away. Oh, no, about fifty was, years it, prior to him. That's yeah, true. and it takes a while for people to, you know, get the book into their hands, read it, and then gestate on it, and then yeah, yeah, it misinterpret it, right. <laughs> and then, no, I mean, and then well, it was fifty years for people to say, "No, you guys were reading it wrong." Uh, yeah. This story was still well before, uh, well before it was considered really acceptable in some schools to teach people, oh, by the way, you're all apes. It, it, oh, mm-hmm. sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, you had the Scopes trial in, I think, the early 20s. Mm-hmm. So in 1913, this was still pretty radical stuff, I would think, the idea that uh, yeah. evolution happened. Uh, oh, I mean, I, I remember in Gods and Generals or Gettysburg or whatever, it, it, during the Civil War, the, the Confederates are, are, are debating whether man is descended from an uh, ape. Um, so yeah, it's still it's still cutting edge stuff. I mean, we we weren't uh, doubling human knowledge every ten years at that time. We were we were still back uh, before it had hit its explosive exponential growth. So uh, the notion, yeah, of, of evolution that would still be uh, modern, you know, um, modern physics to this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, the the other thing that strikes me is um, uh, you just said uh, Casback, right? That, mm-hmm. that name. All these names of you know the alien planets and the alien men of all these places. It strikes me that actually uh, this this story is set in an interesting place. Like why why isn't he in a European you know castle somewhere? Because well that's not really where people are focused anymore. That's not the frontier where you could go to. Uh, it, what's interesting going into Frankenstein right at. One one of the things I was thinking about Frankenstein all through this book because uh, I mean it, they're r- quite radically different in a lot of ways, but they're also they're you know he's inspired definitely by Frankenstein. And mm-hmm. one of the things that happens is is in Frankenstein um, the creator creates the creature, doesn't give it a name, right? Just like you know he's basically creature number one right right, right. He, he doesn't give it a name it goes it it wanders off because it's uh you know the parent is not taking care of it um and he, go, he goes to sleep as soon as he finishes creating the creature wanders off and then uh has a series of unfortunate events that everybody's horrified by his disgusting visage right right they, they just treat him like a monster even though he's not a monster and then he comes back to his creator and demands um, that the creator create him a wife. Mm-hmm. And the creator eventually says, that's cool. Um, oh, well, he says, I'll do it. 
Um, and, it, and then the creature says, and if you do that, I'll go off to the wilds of North America or South America and never be seen by men again. Ah, uh-huh. And in this, we've got the creation of a series of men in order to create a wife for a human woman, which is, or a husband for a human woman, which is, is kind of interesting. But in, in thinking about how that creation, you know, that actually doesn't happen in Frankenstein, he, he destroys the materials uh, for the woman that he's making, uh, Frankenstein does, um, in the same way as uh, our hero, Mox, or our, our mad scientist Moxon does at the beginning of this book. He, he dest- he's destroying the creation that he's made in, this, in, a, in a very similar manner. And then what's interesting is that if that woman in Frankenstein had been created, wouldn't she have some say in the matter as to who whether she's going to marry this other creature that just happens to... You had to wait for the, the movie. Same... You had to wait for the movie for that scene. <laughs> well, that... Her decision was no. Yeah, yeah. Right. And there's a, there's a new television series on now called Penny Dreadful, where mm. the fr- Frankenstein has create, creates a creature, it goes off, and then in the very first episode of the show, we find out, oh, actually, the one he's creating, that's his second one. Um, and the and the creature comes back and sees the second one being created and that it's being treated nicely because it's pretty, mm-hmm. and kills it. The the first creature kills the second one and says, "Make me a woman." I <laughs> 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 don't want this dude. And uh, and then he does in later seasons. And it's like, yeah. Well, the thing is, is just because you've been created doesn't mean by your parent or whatever doesn't mean you have to marry. So there's some sort of interesting uh, stuff that almost plays out in this book, mm-hmm. in the sense that Moxon wants doesn't really care what his daughter wants. He's sort of mad in that way. But then also, he, you know, she comes to love the the creation anyways, mm-hmm. even though he's soulless and he thinks he's soulless. Oh, and then it turns out he does have a soul. Oh, right, right. He wasn't a creation. Like he gets to have his cake and eat it too. In that sense, and I, I just think it's really interesting. Why is it set in Borneo or you know the, well, these parts as opposed to some European castle or the wilds of North America, right? W- that he has to do his experiments on some Doctor Moreau style, bor- you know, in the East Indies island somewhere. Hmm. Well, he he definitely want. Hey, he has to leave civilization. Uh, that's set and he's already used Africa quite a bit for Tarzan or in 1913 not so much but he did kind of keep his world separate so uh, I guess to him that was just an exotic uh, faraway place where uh, he's not going to be subject to uh, silly laws like thou shalt not kill man <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he, yeah. wa- he wants a place where he's not going to have to worry about policemen coming to, uh, to look at uh, his laboratory which is why he was putting the other thing in nitric acid because he didn't want the cops to find seemingly dead bodies on his uh, property. And mm-hmm. uh, rather than have to go through all that over again, uh, boy, he should have seen Breaking Bad. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, rather than do that, he just packs up and uh, sails away for Borneo. <laughs> but, uh, in you know, a uh, hundred years ago, that were, probably was considered the edge of the world. It was, yeah. I mean... Uh- 
Jack London Jack London went to that area, and there were headhunters there. There was still pirate. There was still piracy uh, rampant, right? Mm, he possibly he possibly just read a book or a series of books concerning concerning that area. Uh, the, mm. the the Dayax or Diax, I guess it depends on how, how, you, how you pronounce them. Uh, of Borneo, definitely they're, familiar. They're actually, yeah. they're actually a real. I was originally wondering, are these were the were these like the Dakites from um, from Fu Manchu uh, ah. from from Sax Romer's books? Right. Uh, the, hmm. Hmm. Who I wonder if I I have never taken the time to look at that. It's always been a situation where I'll think of the Dakites and I'll think, were they a real hmm. culture? This this sinister tribal sort of people that, that he was capable of contacting who had various secret ways of killing people and I would I would think, hmm, I wonder if they're supposed to be based on something. And I was wondering <laughs> the whole time I was reading this if they were if that was just the way they pronounced Dayak. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. British. I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to look it. I'll have to try look to it up. I, I did look up diax, and it is a word in the dictionary. So, so uh, Dakites. Uh, who knows who stole from whom? <laughs> They're a native people of Borneo. That's primarily what I have jotted jot down here in my notes. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, the the the, the Caspak connection makes me think of. Sarawak, you guys know this island, Sarawak, the kingdom of Sarawak. Okay, this is really cool. I mean, the history of that area is very interesting. There there was this dude out of the UK, uh, maybe he's born in India. Anyways, he's born in India, goes to England for his education, and and then gets an inheritance, buys a ship, and goes to the East Indies. And and he says, you know what? I'm going to carve out a kingdom for myself. And he does. He he helps the Sultan of Brunei take over some area uh, that he had lost control of by routing some pirates. And then the Sultan of Brunei says, you know what? You're now the Raja of of Sarawak. Hmm. And this is like, uh, this is uh, from like 1830 to about 1860, um, there's this sort of, Englishman running, uh, you know, a huge chunk of this area, and it's like that's it, that's got to be in the back of of Burroughs's mind, I would think. It's just like an area where, you know, they say go west, young man, right? Well, California's you know sort of played out. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, well, where 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 you go to Hawaii? Okay, yeah, but that's not big enough, right? Yeah, no, 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 no. You already explored those, so keep going west. Yeah, farther west. You'll get Asia, right? But just before Asia, you'll get to uh, the East Indies. It, it's 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 kind of a curious place to to send it. Other than it allows you to have pirates mm, and uh, headhunters and headhunters. <laughs> This book, I mean, he's really throwing the kitchen sink in when it comes to action, right? Everything's going on in this. Oh. There's headhunters. There's a fight with, with the orangutans. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that might be the least plausible thing because I don't think orangutans hang out in big groups Poor like that. demonized <laughs> orangutans. I swear Edgar uh, Allan Poe owes them a huge apology. Yeah, it's He true. made them the all-purpose villain of the 1800s sometimes. That's true. Yeah, yeah, and these, yeah, and uh, we're 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 getting it in spades here. There's these savage, uh, man-like creatures who uh, kill and and hurt and uh, steal white women. And <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh uh, yeah, well, number number something or other thought the orangutan woman was attractive, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I I kind of feel for him, you know, like he's he's I I didn't I did not like all this stuff was like well a soulless creature I can never love one of those and like hey he's just a poor creature leave him be yeah yeah, yeah I mean sure he needs to be whipped every five minutes, <laughs> but, but you would have to be you know if you were treated like the way Moxon treats yeah, yeah, well, the shades of Fritz uh, whipping the monster in, in the tower sure yeah I I think there's it, it it feels like he would he could have gone on with this as a series, but he never did, right? Right. No, this was a standalone. He he didn't pick up on it again. It's it's interesting because the ending, you know, it's not completely sealed off in that way. Uh, I can imagine the the ship on the way back is going to you know get attacked by some other kind of pirate. <laughs> <laughs> they go off on the you know a series of similar adventures, but. But the thing is, is Moxon, Moxon is, he's got something wrong with his head, right? Oh, yeah, it, he's, he's got a screw loose. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a standard, that's actually a standard character type for, uh, for Edgar Rice Burroughs. What's the, oh, what is, what is the, the crazy Bible-thumping professor who goes, to, it, it's, a, it, um, it's the one with, not, not with Casback, it's the one where they go to the center of the earth, and, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 their their idea is like, wow, what an amazing unspoiled wilderness! You know what would mm. make this place so much better? Telegraph wires and guns <laughs> and yeah, Gridley, yeah, Gridley. I think exactly. was the guy's name, Gridley, Professor Gridley. That, that's uh, that's the one who's played by Peter Cushing in the movie. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I, I I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, yeah, he was he was a fun he was fun because wasn't he. He was like, we just need to bring Christianity down here too. Wasn't that him? Yeah. yeah. I, well, he was something. Yeah, he was something of a religious fanatic. Yeah. That's yeah. It was. It was really fun. Well, I, I always get that opinion with uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Anyway, I sometimes think of Edgar Rice Burroughs as a um, as as a god figure who will choose a character. In this case, I suppose, I suppose Maxon or Moxon will choose a character to be his sort of supplemental god and and the goal is now i've got to get adam and eve together this is my right, adam yeah. this is my this eve. Is... they're going to get together and make the perfect world everything beforehand it's never destroyed in the deluge but it always seems like the world around them is flawed they're the, they're perfect in their own in their own way and we're supposed to focus on on that perfection it uh, he 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 never he really goes back to certain wells so often, but he's. Yeah. I wish you were more appreciated these days because he is fun. He's one of the most fun writers ever, and sometimes he'll come at you from a weird angle, and you'll be disgusted and horrified. And I don't I don't mean I'm not doing racism thing. I mean like uh, like in the, uh, in the same one about the about the center of the earth. That whole scene where those lizard people are uh-huh. him. Human beings and, and eating them s- alive, snipping yeah. off a portion at a time. You you get to that and you realize this couldn't appear in a modern movie without seeming like a human centipede monstrosity. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It, it seems it seems like that happened happened at at, at weird in- intervals in um in, in a good Edgar Rice Burroughs story. It's it's part of the flavor. The 
spice of this guy. He's a you're, you're right. really he's, satisfying writer. And, and, and the other interesting thing is, you know, he doesn't seem to be putting on, you know, it, in if you watch a modern movie, that, you know, the ones that Hollywood produces mm-hmm. to recipe now, um, they basically they have to have a female love interest sort of sort of thing going on in it if you are going to not if you're going to make money you know every hollywood movie even if it's you know uh, a philip k dick novel about you know whether you're a robot or not has that on love <laughs> love sort of connection going on and it often feels very forced right because the story doesn't need it mm-hmm. to do that's not what the story's about and yet in order to sell the movie to the audience you know i'm not going to go see that says the wife when she sees the movie that doesn't have any females in the trailer um unlike that sort of style of writing where you write to the market i i think that just based on edgar edgar rice burroughs's books that i've read so far it seems to me that he was genuinely interested in having exactly what you're saying, John, this sort of Adam and Eve, the perfect couple getting together, uh, fighting to stay together, fighting to be together uh, in a world full of hideous monsters or uh, some sort of problems that separate them. And then there is this sort of, uh, uh, you know, more Heinleinian father figure in the background who... uh, He's got something broken in his head, but he's interesting and intelligent. <laughs> I hate uh, to say it, but I think you just described Twilight. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Edgar Rice Burroughs, Twilight. Twilight, uh-huh. uh-huh. There would be more fighting. <laughs> there would be a lot more fighting, definitely. And less, a lot more S&M, too. <laughs> oh, but, they, but the heroine would actually have some gumption, too. Mm-hmm. I, uh, that's the thing. I did not read the Twilight books. I was forced to read one chapter. Uh, I was forced. I can't believe I'm saying that. I was paid to read one chapter, and then uh, I avoided the movies. But in the one chapter I read, it was it was about a girl being very excited about the fact that she was going to go to sleep, and her vampire boyfriend was going to watch her while she slept because, of course, he doesn't sleep. You just sit there watching her breathe. Well, she slept. And I was like, well, if that's your kind of, you know, act, the thing you kind of enjoy, there's something wrong. Well, I mean, it's, there's something wrong with that book. Uh, but I, I guess that's, you know, it's vicarious uh, thrills for a certain kind of girl, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand that. But is that the plot of Twilight exactly? <sighs> Uh, I, I haven't read it. <laughs> I haven't read it either. Okay. All I know is I've, we've employed three before the movies. We've employed three girls who waitresses who spoke often about Twilight and worshipped at the feet of Twilight, and mm-hmm. they were aggressively Christian. So I was under the impression it was some sort of Christian vampire story. And yeah. well, I, I guess that's Mormon. basically what it is. Writer's Mormon. I, I don't know exactly. Yeah, I, I don't understand it. Save yourself before marriage. I think that that's the thing. Even uh, if marriage okay. means getting bitten by a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, or 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 a chemical test test tube creature. True David, enough. you 
you have read, I'm thinking pretty close to all of the main books now. by now. He never did a, a vampire story, did he? No, he did not. No, he didn't. Uh, and I'm trying to think if there's anything even He's done everything else. It. He's done Aliens. He's done Frankenstein. Mm. Yeah. Well, he hasn't done werewolves either. He hasn't done shapeshifters okay. or mummies. But uh, um, I'm, Wait a second. I'm thinking vampires might have been in one of those Journey to the Center of the Earth books. Uh, what were the I don't headless, recall them. Don't recall. What were, what were the severed head creatures from? Oh, those were from, in Chessmen. Uh, yeah, pre- yeah. Pre- pre- preci- precisely. They well hypnotize people. And the, but here's the problem: when you say vampire, if you mean I'm a dead guy who drinks blood, no, no. But they hypnotize people and then feed off of them. So yeah. that, that, there, there's there's something there a little bit more like mind fla- uh, well mind flayers from uh, the monster <laughs> manual. Mm. Not Cthulhu from the de- de- deities and demigods. <laughs> yeah, those guys. <laughs> I will just um, say I love Earl Otis's artwork and his illustrations of those characters is so satisfying. Definitely. Let's see. I'm, no, I'm, no, I don't think he, he he didn't go for the standard Western type scary stories. We we don't have any ghosts that I can recall that he's made oh. a story out of. No ghosts, no vampires, no werewolves. His characters oh. are often willfully refusing to accept the existence of the supernatural, which makes yeah. sense because in his stories, it's never a a supernatural entity. Yeah, there's might no, be the no power of some uh, of some creature's mind. There might be an unusual, an unnatural thing, but it's never supernatural. You mm-hmm. never encounter a walking corpse or anything like that. I actually think that it was almost uh, Robert Howard talking, not almost uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs talking to us when he ha- when he uh, had the the. I think it was from from the six from the sixth book, Mastermind of Mars, when 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 he had had the. Uh, the, the fellows who were who were all who are all worshippers of this deity, tur, oh, yeah. tur, 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 and they would say, "What?" But you're just saying the same words. No, no, no. We're reversing the order. It's like that doesn't make any sense. And the and the worshiper goes, "That's because you do not believe." In a way, he really, really, really. What he's he's almost super biblical, but would but would probably say the Bible is isn't real. It's just he's of the mindset. But completely rejects the concept of a supernatural world. Uh, men make their own destinies. That, yeah, that the really power is of the, will is the strongest thing. Man, that, other than the power of science, right? No, uh, the power of science and uh, uh, the determined man of action. That that right. seems to be a very strong who, thing. Who is who and has a fortune? Morality. Who has a fortune at home, so he, he he can afford to be a man of action. Everybody turns out to be a. He'll, he'll, I don't think he ever just has a character who I'm just a poor schlub. I've got nothing behind me. Right. They always have to be from money and breeding. Even Tarzan had to be from <laughs> money and breeding. <laughs> Only in his blood. In his blood, yes. If it, his parents wouldn't turn out to be plumbers, they had to be noblemen. <laughs> they were noblemen, yeah. yeah. Right. You, can, you can tell just by his countenance, you know. Yeah, he, yeah right. He's, he, he comes from money, definitely. Um, uh, that's kind of why Virginia falls in love with number 13, right? Number 13, we get, we're inside his head. He's like, oh, geez, how could she ever love a guy without a soul? Well, you haven't seen the mirror, bud. If you looked in the mirror, you could see the money in those cheeks. Mm-hmm. Right? The breeding, yes. <laughs> that's definitely right. I mean, it, his, his, um, uh-huh. 
Singh's explanation and then his final remembrance of, oh, suddenly I remember I'm, <laughs> I'm that guy from the beginning of the book. Right, I remember, yeah. I'm like, what, did somebody unconk him on the head? What, what went on there? I mean, this is, this is the most, yeah, I, did, I would say that's the right word for it. It's the most undercooked part of, uh, 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 part of the book. It's, it's, it's pretty really uh, lacking development. It's uns- very unsatisfying. I, I just, like uh, the concept of number 13 so much when it's, but it, it kept, no, he's going to turn out to be, of course he's going to, please don't be, please just have Townsend Harper show up out of nowhere. No, no. He had to be number 13. Oh, of course. You took mm. the, the really creative, unique thing and mm. just tossed it out the window and said, no, think, he's rich. I think if he had gone the other way and made him, you know, full bore, I think this would be that you know, level of a famous book. I mean, I'd not heard of this one before I said, hmm, I wonder what David's been working on. Uh, I went over to the website and I said, oh, he's just finished a book, right? Um, I, if, I hadn't heard of Monster Men, but I think, you know, if it had that sort of really, I guess, uh, it would, you know, the soulless man actually being uh, an actual soulless man, the man without a soul... Um, was actually a man without a soul. I think this book would be more famous, even if he changed nothing else. Yeah, it certainly would have been more shocking. Yeah, for his audience, for that, right? It would I mean, have lived longer wow. in the human consciousness. We'd still so, be talking about this story. So, why do we think? Is it just because it, it that racism is so ingrained that he couldn't have it that way? Because all is it because they all have to be men from great it, families? It's and, almost like Burroughs had his own Hayes Commission. There were things he just yeah, wouldn't weird. do, uh, and uh, he really liked the idea of, of good, clean American, strong, bully Teddy Roosevelt kind of uh, athletic men. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> he Thank was you. really That's- into that. But and uh, it, it's yeah, he's always talking about how rotten civilization is. But he eventually, at the end of the day, he he's very conventional in in the morality and and the kind of uh, stories that he's telling. We can't have a, a soulless creature as a hero. That just doesn't work in his universe. It's it, it's got to be uh, uh, the soulless creature is a is a clean cut. White man, <laughs> very true. Stru- now, it, it's yeah, it's very interesting. You know, somebody we've not mentioned, and uh, somebody who I thought was going to turn out to be sort of because our hero number thirteen doesn't show up until uh, well, other than right at the beginning, doesn't show up in the book for quite a bit. Um, and I was thinking, like, okay, this Doctor Carl Van Horn guy, he's got to be the love interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's not that. I mean, he doesn't seem like that much of a villain at first. Am I wrong? No, no. He, well, that's part of his villainy is he's able to pass. No, he. For a while, you think he's just uh, uh, helping the professor and uh, doesn't have ulterior motives, or maybe he's got the hots for Virginia. We yeah, he has of, the hots for her. We get but that, but uh, he's he, he's like under an oath to 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 like the the way he talks. He's like, well, I made a commitment to fulfill my contract with the doctor and I can't go against that. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that seems reasonable until the doctor goes too far. And then he says, okay, right. I'm going to break, break my, 
my contract. And then, you know, that, that seems legit. Like he seems like he's going to be the hero. And then he just, he just turns completely the other way. Oh yeah. Bad guy. And at the end he's, he's been, you know, he's a deserter too. Right. He's a coward. Right. It's like, okay. So he definitely was not going to be the, the love interest. I like to think of it as part of his uh, complexity as a writer that you can take this character, and yes, this character is supposed to be a bad guy, and this character is supposed to be a good guy, but the good guy can have bad guy traits, and the bad guy can have moments of heroism or moments of, of well, well, no, I, of course I wouldn't do that. What are you talking about? I'm a human mm-hmm. being with standards, for pity's sake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But sometimes... Sometimes in the in the course of this book, I had this feeling that he was writing furiously and maybe not reading back as to what he had written, <laughs> you know, 20, 50, 50 pages before. And I sometimes seems to me that t- that it would have been. I have this image of him towards the end of the book, wondering if he should go back to the beginning and sort of cut out Townsend Harper. I have I a feeling added, where it, I think he added Townsend Harper hmm. after yeah. because uh, <laughs> I think that, that's pro- that's po- possible. I, I, I wasn't think, looking at it from that point of view. Maybe he originally had yeah experiment thirteen, experiment thirty, experiment thirteen. Yeah, I got to go back to the well on this one, and that's Townsend Harper's reappearance at the end. Ta da! And I'm rich, and I need a wife, and uh, <laughs> it, just. Perfect, perfect fit for everything. I am your Adam the whole time, mm, but I mm. liked Experiment Thirteen better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm in agreement. It would have been cool if, uh, uh, well, it would have been meant that Professor Maxon was a better scientist than we all thought. Yeah, I mean, what what, what is exactly the pro? I mean, this is sort of the thing. It goes back to Frankenstein again, right? Frankenstein, the reason he rejects his creation is that, well, if you read the description very closely, is that he's kind of disgusted with what he's made. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the way I explain it to my students when we're reading Frankenstein, because we read Frankenstein a lot, so is, well, yeah, but you ever seen a newborn baby? They don't, they don't look that great. <laughs> That's true. I mean, rapidly, rapidly, they start looking better, right? But no, I'm talking, you know, just come out, just come out of the cooker. Uh, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. they do not look that great, and it, it is literally just as he's finished. He says, "I designed them to be beautiful," and oh, you know, and then he says, "Ooh, that dull yellow eye and uh, the the muscles barely concealed beneath the skin." It's like, well, yeah, but you know, he's, he hasn't been outside yet. He doesn't have a tan. Give him, give him a minute. <laughs> Um, and then later on, you know, he's he, whenever he's confront the the creature is confronted by by people. You know, he he when he talks to the blind man, as is made famous in the movies as well, and even you know, Young Frankenstein and such. Um, he he gets along perfectly well, right? right? Because he's so articulate. He's he's a literary guy, not the sort of rude creature, you know, <clears throat> right, me right. hate fire sort right, of thing. Right. Well, it, it, um, the blind. But then when people see him, they're they you know are freaked out. So I mean, this this lookism thing where you know somebody's okay, they've got a uh, some sort of scar on their face or a defect, you know, that is upsetting, but. 
that's not the way to judge people, but I guess, you know, in Edgar Rice Burroughs' world, <laughs> the beautiful young daughter that can inspire a, a stalker to follow her across the world and get himself knocked on the head somehow, loses four companions, and uh, end up marrying her, that, that seems, that's reasonable, because she was so pretty. Right, right. We, we haven't even talked about what happened to those four companions. I mean... Oh, yeah, um, I mean, what's going on there? I guess they don't have to pay the car now? Is well, maybe, right? maybe, maybe there was cannibalism in that boat. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that um, also reminds... We mentioned it at the beginning, but that also is... Um, part of the island of Dr. Moreau, which precedes this book by about uh, 15 years, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, maybe 15 years or so. Um, In the island of Dr. Moreau, the main character is uh, on a boat that crashes into another ship in the middle of the uh, Pacific Ocean at night, which is pretty interesting. And then uh, a bunch of people end up in a lifeboat and the three guys end up in a lifeboat, and uh, it is strongly inferable that the main character lies to the reader about what happened in that boat. He says hmm. that two guys, the two guys were so hungry from uh, being on the ship alone for so long and so thirsty that uh, they they went uh, they drew straws to see who would eat the third, you know, right. and then the third. Uh, the the two two guys got into a fight over whose straw was shorter or something, and they fell over the side of the ship, uh, over the side of the boat, and quote unquote sunk like stones, right, in their desperate hate for each other. And then he shows up on the island. Uh, oh no, he's picked up by the uh, Doctor Moreau uh, ship and taken to the island there. And he turns out, I mean, he's a villain. This is H.G. Wells doesn't unlike uh, Burroughs, who you know the main character is always the hero, even if he does things we might be a little bit disgusted by occasionally. Um, he's always the hero in in Wells. The main character is always a villain, hmm. and it it's very interesting because it has that sort of uh, yeah. I I was on a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and. I go to this island, and there's a doctor doing experiments, and how involved do I get with it? And the the daughter, in this case, of the island of Dr. Moreau, is there's like a, a tiger woman or a cheetah woman or something uh, like yeah, that. Yeah, a cat, cat person, yes. Right, and it's like, okay, uh, they're all sort of the children of the doctor, right? It's it, it That's a really creepy book. And this is... It's like this is like a light romp. <laughs> I sometimes wonder about Wells as a person. Um, you oh know, yeah, you know, uh, you know, for example, the, the story of I think it was the the movie version was the Isle of Lost Souls, mm-hmm. and Wells strongly disagreed with their depiction of of Doctor Moreau. In, in his ways, he was a more heroic figure, mm-hmm. but then again, Wells was. He was a supporter of vivisection. He was a. There's a lot of unpleasantness in 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 the Wellesian background. Uh, there's a lot of unpleasantness in every great writer. I I feel it's 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 just you you just have to accept that as part of it. That unpleasantness, Lovecraft's flaws, Robert Howard's flaws, made them the person they were. If they were a more balanced person, then 
they wouldn't have they wouldn't have written what they what they wrote, and they wouldn't have been as memorable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to you know wash away all their sins. I mean they've got various issues. Uh, what was it? Robert Howard was it Tarzana, California, which was uh, it, part of the town charter was there were supposed to be no Negroes living in the town. Oh God! Wow. I, I, remember, I remember reading that and thinking, "Ew!" and noting that. Well, incidentally, that doesn't doesn't exist anymore as time went by. It's like, yeah, this is this is not a, not something that you could actually legally enforce. But I don't think that started to change until the '60s. No, oh. right, right. A- anyway, anyway, it, it's it, it's also interesting. I, I think like the uh, the. The Asian element in this, it, it, there are these subtle cast, you know, thrown away lines. One of the things Virginia says is, "You left me on, you left me, father, or something on the, in the fort with, with not a you single European." <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like okay, right. uh, I guess you mean white people, right? Right. Well, none of them are from Europe, right? It's like okay, so it's like oh well, but loyal Singh, he's the hero, man. Loyal Singh, yes, the uh, the Chinese cook. <laughs> it, the, I don't know. Asian characters always in, in these sort of stories. I'm always under the impression that the writer is caught between a sort of hey, they had an empire that controlled X, Y, Z and amounts of the planet and were mm-hmm. unconquerable forever. And th- It's a little less uh, yellow peril-y than I was expecting. Yes. Given, given mm-hmm. how many mm-hmm. yellow men are running around in this, in this book. The, you know, the, the, the pirates and the natives and... Dayaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they're, yep. they're, they're Burmese. They're, <clears throat> they would have... They I have True. this. I have this. Fe- I have this feeling that that uh, that Burroughs might have referred to the Burmese as the Negroes of Asia at mm-hmm. one point in time or another. I don't remember where that quote where that quote is from, but it's it's just some something that every that in his writing shows shows up there. <sighs> that burned it. Speaking speaking of showing up, notice who comes in at the end. It's the cavalry. Oh yes, the U.S. Navy. <laughs> the U.S. Navy shows up at, just in time after all the pirates have been uh, uh, getting ready to be routed. Right? It's it's like um, this book really does have everything. Right? It's it, it absolutely is a kitchen sink full of every kind of co- possible conflict. And yeah, it's it just. I think if you had made that one change, if he, if if we were critiquing the book and Edgar Rice Burroughs is here, dude, you got to make thirteen one of your own creations. That'll just make the book so much better. Yeah, yeah, open ended. It, it well, would be so much more open ended, well, right? There, that, well, there it is. There's the reason he wasn't Hemingway. Uh, it, when, when at the end of the day, he was very conventional. As I said, the Hayes Commission, his, uh, he really didn't rock the social boat of his time. He, he really wasn't interested in, in, in doing any of that dangerous, quirky stuff that you're talking about. By the, he, he, well, but you know, by the same token, this is not a podcast about Hemingway. And honestly, I've read Hemingway. He's a very good pro stylist. I love the way his sentences go together. But on the other hand, um I don't like his his stuff. It does not it's not fantastic enough. Yeah, for yeah, me. yeah. No, yeah. He doesn't he doesn't take me off the planet. He doesn't take me in in the, no, another it's, universe. It's, he's he's, he's sort very... of describing 
men and women's relationship or you know the relationship between a man and his penis or <laughs> relationship or not. between a man and a, a, a man right. and his boat i do have a have a real i'm not a big fan of hemingway but I have a real fondness for the old man of the sea he's a really good mm-hmm. writer mm-hmm. but his writing is not as good as his his writing style right? you made I, reference earlier to he was here in in borneo because well everything else was played out this played out this played out I have an image in my head that all of this is really part of a grand connected universe. That is to say mm-hmm. that if he had wound up in Africa, he would have heard about Tarzan because the Tarzan stories exist here. Because mm-hmm. if when he looks up and sees that red star and knows that's Mars, John Carter or John Carter's descendants are right there right now. There mm-hmm. is in the center of the earth a, a, a separate group venus is inhabited moon, the moon is inhabited and at the bottom of the world is caspak i think all of these are connected and the the well you should be pitching this as a show to the erb estate because honestly the fact that they were working on a comic didn't come up until quite late in my researches uh and the thing is is that show penny dreadful mm-hmm. where they take uh, it's got Dr. Frankenstein in it. It's got uh, the Dracula characters, Mina Harker. It's sort, it's of, sort of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It, exactly. Time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, right. Late 19th century, uh, sort of a combination of all of those sort of public domain tropes. I think you're right, John. I think all of, I mean, Burroughs is so great at imagination and none of his stuff is mutually exclusive, right? You can have the Venus stories, the Mars stories, the Tarzan stories, the center of the Earth stories, this story, and, you know, probably five or six others, and have them completely consistent. They're all sort of set at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it would, you could have, you know, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs sort of mashup uh, uh, show, and it wouldn't, wouldn't work Bad, badly at all. I think it would be great. Well, actually, he did that to a small extent. Oh, uh, we, he, he, we, we sent Tarzan to Pellucidar. We had Tarzan right. at the Earth's core. Right. Um, and uh, I think, uh, and then the Pellucidar, Gridley wave. That's what it's called. Pellucidar, yeah. And then the Gridley wave, which was invented by uh, Jason Gridley so that they could talk between uh, the surface and the Earth's core, I think eventually that. Uh, became a way that they communicated also with Mars and or Venus. I can't remember the details. And uh, so th- there are some, some bleed-throughs where one series will acknowledge the existence of another. But except for Tarzan at the Earth's core, he never really wrote a book where the actual two universes melded. There were, there were ancillary things that happened, but uh, it would have been interesting if he had, uh, if he had mashed them up more. <laughs> well, I think that that's that's what people working on it today could do, right? I mean, if you uh, if you look at all the comics that are out there, there there are a lot of uh, you know Tarzan and uh, the Mars books. I think they are mashing them up a, a bit. I'm not hundred percent sure that that's uh, you know those stories are canon, but they will have Tarzan meets uh, you know John Carter sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I wish John Carter had been more popular. Oh, I wish it. The had... movie, you mean? Yeah, yeah. It was I actually a, it was a pretty good movie. Oh, it was, it was a great movie. I, I mean, it's it's destined to be a classic. There were a couple of things I I 
basically, I'm really angry that John Carter has clothes on. Um, I'm I'm angry that they they basically took all this. There are all of these other cities. There are tons of other cities. And in this movie, it's no, no, no. There's only this one and the city that walks around. The city that walks around has destroyed every other city. And then that's just it. But it's like, no, no, no. There's. There are many other cities. There's the city of assassins. There's there's yeah. there's, there's Parth. There's there's places all over the place. No, no, those don't exist. I had this feeling feeling at the start was like, why are you limiting the focus of your yeah. world? Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. They. Uh, yeah. Well, the, that was part of their formula, unfortunately. The, the Tharks were so beautifully realized that I, when I saw Wula, my heart almost broke. Yeah, I thought, I oh, think that's is the star of the show. I mean, yeah, and not that the other people were bad at all. It's just that that was an amazing. Wait a minute, that, that, that may have broken the trope. Number thirteen didn't get a dog, did he? No, hey. he didn't. No, he didn't have that's, a puppy. <laughs> he had because he in, in maybe that's world, what's wrong with this <laughs> He has to, He should have got. He should have gotten a Frankenstein. Wait dog a second. Wait that a was second. part one breed, part another. He oh. had twelve dogs. Yeah, actually, <laughs> oh, yeah, he did. Probably he did. was his dog. Oh. Mm. That's terrible. Oh wow. Well. Yeah, I really, I felt for the twelve. Uh, I, I mean, I, I felt for the thirteen until the thirteen turns. The thirteenth turns out to not be one of the thirteen. Yeah, he was just another superior white man. And I'm also cur- curious about number zero back in. Uh, in New Jersey. Yeah. Or, yeah, well, obviously. New Jersey? No, it was New York, right? Cornell's in New York? Yeah. Well, it's yeah. Yeah, New York State, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, Ithaca, I think, is where they were. Right, well, because the, the ship's ship. the Ithaca. Right? That they, the, uh, the na- oh, that is the name well, of the they, ship, right. They name, it, they name it after the place that they left, right? Ithaca, New York, I think, is where Cornell is. Right. So the ship is renamed Ithaca when they, when they, when he buys it? I can't remember. Maybe I'm wrong about that. In any case, um, what else are you working on, David? I, I, I saw Monster Man. I said, hey, that sounds like a good book. Uh, I'm in the middle of Beyond 30 right now, which is okay. in, an interesting future history from Burroughs' point of view. And for us, it's an interesting alternate history. It's essentially taking uh, World War I and wondering how that's going to wind up. And in uh, Burroughs' universe, uh, it turned into a, a global cataclysm that resulted in uh, the West uh, Hemisphere being completely blocked off and forbidden to go to the East Hemisphere for 200 years. Hmm. And uh, it, what happens when a, a ship from the Western Hemisphere gets blown off course and winds up over in uh, Europe after 200 years? So the 30 is like... Uh, the 30th the longitude. Uh-huh. So and for 200 years in Pan America in the Western Hemisphere, it's forbidden to cross the 30th parallel, or the well, 30th. Well, that sounds interesting. So and uh, yeah, and then something happens that uh, they have uh, combination airship submarines that uh, go through uh, the world, and uh, this one gets blown off course and winds up crossing the 30th parallel. I love uh, dirigibles. Uh, is this a uh a submarine dir- dirigible. I don't know how that would work, but it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's a. It's an airship, but it also can go underwater. It can't just go. It just cannot go on the water. 
Okay, well, uh, uh, how uh, this is a full-length novel. This I is yeah, it's a it's actually a, sh- a rather short novel, but it's a uh, it was originally published as Beyond Thirty. It's also known as The Lost Continent. It Ooh. actually didn't get printed, I don't think, as a book until uh, the '60s. It wow. it had it had been printed as a pulp and then kind of fell between the cracks and. Uh, <laughs> I think Canaveral Press or somebody like that printed it uh, in the 60s, but uh, it was done before 1923. Uh, So that's what I'm working on now is Beyond 30. Cool. And uh, what was the – you were doing all the Mars books that were in public domain. You you Uh, finished – I did finish those long ago. Uh, The Pellucidars, I'm done. Uh, The Caspacks. I've done the eight public domain Tarzans, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm really kind of down to the wire that there's very little else for Burroughs I can do because I'm not that interested in his social stuff. I mean, yeah, you don't got, want to do the girl. Yeah, we've got the mucker. We've got a, a colleague of mine actually just released the efficiency expert at Audible. If you want to try that, uh, mm-hmm. the girl from Ferris's, uh, the girl from Hollywood. Uh, it was uh, his pulp pulp version of uh, of uh, attempts at social realism, I guess. Right. Which I, I think would I, I'd be interesting to try, but like you know, uh, if he's trying to do Hemingway, I, I think Hemingway would do a better job. Than I, I would think Hemingway. so. I would think so. But I'd, I'd be interested to you know read ten pages and say, okay, wh- where's the mad scientist and and uh, when are they gonna you know do a portal to another dimension or something yeah, like that? Bad efficiency expert. Yeah, I think you've got the mucker who's a thug in Chicago, and I think he winds <laughs> up with uh, the. I think there's gangsters or maybe even oriental gangsters. Yeah, something like that, as I recall. Uh, But uh, it's a long time since I've read that one. So, what is that going to mean when you finish Beyond 30? Are you going to. Oh, there's uh, two more. There's uh, The Outlaw of Torn, which is the second book he wrote, which is kind of a Robin Hood ish type story. And there's The Mad King, which is kind of um, um, oh, a Ruritania. What is that one? Ooh, yeah. It's a Ruritanian. Oh, man. Barney Custer. Yeah, yeah. Barney Custer of. I uh, can't remember the name of the country, but it's. Uh, it's uh, oh, what's the name? What? Somewhere in Europe? Yes, a European uh, monarchy kind of thing. Oh, Pris- a- Prisoner of Zendish kind of yeah, yeah. trope. Yeah, it's called a Ruritanian romance on Wikipedia. I love those. We did we did a bunch. Did you know that uh, that Churchill wrote a Ruritanian romance? I didn't know that. No, I didn't. Isn't that interesting? Wow. And uh, this is the funny part, right? Is you know everybody when they write Ruritanian romances, they 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 set it in a, a kingdom that's you know undergoing some sort of uh, title difficulty, and the main character needs to go in there and help. The uh, help the kingdom get back on its rightful, you know, uh, kingdom sort of plan. Um, well, when Churchill does it, it's a republic, and he has to prevent the republic from being overturned. Of and made course, to, uh, right? See, <laughs> I love how that's why Churchill, you know, he didn't accept a uh, uh, he t- he accepted a uh, no, he didn't take a title, and uh, only thing he would take was the sir. Uh-huh. Long service, right? Interesting. It's yeah, because he was a, his mom was a, an American. Yes. So he was really he was a, basically he was a Republican at heart, right? Yeah. Not a monarchist. An egalitarian. Yeah. Uh huh. 
Uh-huh. Which is interesting. So uh, after that, are you thinking of another author? I or? haven't been thinking about that. Actually, uh, I have met with the ERB, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' estate. Uh, I've, as a side effect of doing this podcasting for all these years, I've, I've actually met uh, the uh, president of ERB and uh, some of his staff, and I'm part of the uh, fan base in Southern California. So mm-hmm. I actually have sat down with uh, Jim Sullis, who is the president of ERB, and uh, I'm exploring getting some authorization from the estate to do something hey. in 1924 and after uh, work. Okay, that was what I was going to ask you. If, if, That'd be if cool. That was in the, the future, but I thought... He would have mentioned that. No, it's, it's, we're, we're exploring it uh, by this time. You, there, there's all kinds of rights things, and uh, the estate uh, has their own way of making money. So uh, actually getting the rights uh, free and clear to do the audio books is, is uh, not uh, a piece of cake. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's on the table. I have talked to them. They when Before I talked to them, they were kind of not really aware that there were such things as audiobooks and when i showed them well there's over a hundred audiobook versions of the pd stuff of your guy they, it was kind of like uh, opening their eyes i don't think they were aware that, that that had been done and uh the the notion that they've got about 60 of these books sitting on the shelf that could be making money for the estate as audiobooks uh somehow that's got to happen but and we're exploring it. we're it's a we're exploring it we're we're trying to find ways to make that happen Oh, hopefully they'll uh, come. To, uh, the thing is, is you know, you're so expert now at at doing uh, burrows. I mean, they'd be foolish not to, to say, "Geez, you know, if we're going to get somebody to do it." Yeah, well, uh, that, that's, that's part of the package. Is I've you know, I've, I've shown them that, and I, I let absolutely. them listen to it, and they like they liked what I'm doing. And they say, "Okay, I get it. Yeah, you you're good at this." Yeah, I mean, unless you know, they said, "I don't know how your English accent is or German or whatever." No, you've done German, and there's some German guys, right? Yeah, I've done some German. Yeah, and, and, uh, yeah, yeah. You're you're really good at this. I mean, this is this is the thing is if you read, you know, a lot of. Uh, H.G. Wells, you need an English accent all the time, right? Right, you right. You need well, a lot of Edgar Rice Burroughs, you need a guy from California, right? Yeah, yeah, you want an American, yeah, so that's right. fine. And, and, Who can do it? And you, and if you're doing foreign accents, they're cart- they, they cartoon foreign accent from the, <laughs> the guy from, uh, I, I still had... Singapore! The Singapore, yeah! And uh, I, I had troubles every time I had to say Chinaman. Uh-huh. You know, here's the Chinaman. <laughs> oh, uh, that reminds me, um, it came up a couple of times in here as a nice synonym, um, celestials. Did you notice that? Yes. 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 So that's uh, I, I first heard that term for Chinese uh, in the show called Deadwood. Do you guys remember that oh, HBO? Yeah. Show? Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Yep. That's what uh, the the bar owner was always calling the Chinese. He's calling them celestials. Why is he calling them that? Well, apparently uh, at the time it was the celestial kingdom, right? right. Right. Is the translation so? It, it sounds like it's it's some sort of pejorative term, given that it it has nothing to do with the. Uh, it's like well, it's not the country that they're from, right? Right, <laughs> right. Place called Celeste or anything, right? Right. So, yeah, it's just it's just a sort of direct translation of what the empire's name would have been, I guess. Right. And and it's I I just think that that's a really interesting term that has completely dropped off the map. That's right. The 
only only one we remember are Chinamen, right? That's the only sort of term. But even then, it's not pejorative to say Chinamen, right? It's only now we're looking back and say, oh, you shouldn't call them celestials. It's like, dude, that's what the that's, translation... Yeah, it was, it was considered politically correct to call them it, at that time, just, I would think. Exactly. I, uh, yeah. Yes, the po- it, it politically correct in the sense that everybody was doing it, right? That's it what was you not a, them, right. That, that's the term for it. Well, when I was I, growing up, uh, the word Negro was the perfectly respectable way to refer to a certain... Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and now we don't do that. Uh, but when I was growing up, that was considered the respectful thing to say. That was the the normal. Thing yeah, to yeah, say. yeah, yeah. Well, there were other things to say, but uh, right, I but, won't repeat yeah. those now. Yeah, but, th- but those were not considered nice, right? No. So if if Edgar Rice Burroughs was trying to attack uh, our Singapore hero, <laughs> he wouldn't have called him a celestial. He That's right. He, uh, he he was he he could he could throw the epithets around from time to time. I, we we have the N word for blacks in a couple of uh, places, and uh, I'm sure uh, I don't know I don't know if he used the the C uh, epithet for for Chinese people ever, but. Uh, um, with C epithet, uh, like, huh? uh, C H I N K. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. He might. Uh, I. I might have seen that in Burroughs somewhere. I'm not sure, but I don't remember that. He. He, he was. A, he. He would use an epithet uh, shamelessly when it when it suited him. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Is it the character or is it him? Right. Some of it, I think, is him, and some of it. I don't know. His characters are him. Maybe that's the thing. Yeah. Well, they and he was a man of the times with the prejudices of the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but Very can we at least say that while he had those prejudices, which most people at that time did, he was usually willing to overlook them for the sake of a story, or Absolutely. he could, if a person was supposed to, was supposed to be on the side of the heroes, they wouldn't. Cling to to, to to the to the stereotype that that most people would consider acceptable at the time period. Oh. Absolutely, uh, in yeah. a lot of ways, he was very liberated for his mm-hmm. time because he would even talk about how some of the blacks are more noble than the whites. Mm-hmm. You know, he would he would <laughs> talk about how the noble savage is is much more a, a good human being than the uh, rich uh, Van Horn who pretends to be good and then screws everybody. Oh, it seems is to it, me that he is and Robert Howard Hart would have gotten along. Sorry? It always seems to me that he and Robert ha- Howard might have gotten along. And yet, eh, Robert it Howard is, didn't, have enough, yeah. didn't, have, didn't have enough super rich guys as his focus. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's I, interesting. I wonder, you know, he, his direct contemporary would have been... Um, uh, Jack London, mm-hmm. and and London is also a California guy, although he's based out of San Francisco. I wonder if there are any meetings. I think he would have considered London a little too liberal. Uh, in his, oh yeah, in his uh, cer- certainly his political but, thoughts. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Ed was very, very conservative, very, very uh, free enterprise. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting because uh, London is, you know, Howard was a big fan of London's, and you can totally see that. And they, they all three guys are sort of about, you know, using the power of will uh, to give yourself big muscles and, you know, get the girl and ride off into the sunset. All uh, three of them would have voted for Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. Uh, I think we could probably find out how Jack London voted. I don't remember, but... 
I I don't know. I don't know about that. Maybe London Maybe. was a London was a he he was a real hardcore. Um, yeah. Early and, Roosevelt, when Roosevelt was when Roosevelt was obsessed with breaking up the trusts and such, I think that he would yeah. have been on his side. Probably That's not true. later. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> A weapon of surprise, surprise and fear, fear and surprise, are two!